I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. And then along came Uber and Lyft and all these guys. So when these technologies came in, it radically changed the way business was done in in the transportation industry. It made it a lot more uh, convenient for the end user, right? So in our case, with the way Web3 properties are being sold, right? When you decide to make that purchase, the blockchain is instantaneously transferring the asset and the money, right? So it's a it's a little bit more convenient and pleasurable both for the buyer and seller. And oh, by the way, you can also save on costs and fees because you don't have some of the same intermediaries. So it's a little bit cheaper as well. Hello. My name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for coming back, everybody. You may have seen this meme going around online, either LinkedIn or Twitter, that showed a home in South Carolina that sold as an NFT. I happened to be scrolling through the comments and saw someone that actually worked on the deal. So I reached out, and they were kind enough to join me for this conversation. So today I have Sanjay Raghavan, he's the head of Web3 initiatives at Roofstock, and Jeffrey Thompson, he's the chief blockchain officer at Roofstock. Now just to give you a heads up, you don't have to be an expert in cryptocurrency, blockchain, or anything like that. Pretty mindful about explaining things, uh, setting up the conversation for you, and then trying to explain as much as possible throughout to help you along in understanding this digital world as well as this deal that happened. Um, So it's a fascinating conversation. We talk through a lot of details and um, I personally learned a lot 
and we talk specifically about how some of this can play into the real estate world, some things that could potentially be on the horizon for real estate. So this is definitely one that you want to stick around and listen to the entire thing. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sanjay Raghavan and Jeffrey Thompson. Sanjay, Jeff, thank you for joining me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I I saw, I stumbled upon this project, this home that was sold as an NFT. So it was like a meme that somebody put out. And then uh, Sanjay, I saw you commented and you were explaining the process and some of the details. And I was like, I got have to, I have to get him on <laughs> to talk about this project. Uh, so thank you so much for, for joining me. We're very excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you. So Jeff, I'll start with you. Um, we have a wide range of listeners that will vary in their knowledge level of what crypto NFTs, blockchain, that whole world is. Can you give us a little bit of a baseline understanding and hit some of those major points just so that we can set up the conversation and give some people an understanding of where we're going when we hit when we talk about certain words? Absolutely. Yeah. What is a blockchain? What is NFT? Why does it matter? Yeah, let's start with that. So a blockchain is it's really just a way of recording information and it's it's a, a ledger that anyone can look at at any time. So it's public and um, it allows you to record transactions, including things like ownership, transfer of ownership. Um, and so once it's been recorded there, then it's permanent. It can't be changed. And it's a record that everyone can refer to without having to trust an intermediary who kind of vouches for something to be true. You don't need to have an intermediary that's vouching for anything. You can just look at the transaction on the public blockchain and see what happened and when it happened and what was exchanged and, and that type of thing. So that's a very high level, um, are at least as far as we're concerned, um, the technology that, that's applicable to real estate. And the NFT is really just a, an extension of that. An NFT, a non-fungible token, is is really just a single instance of a digital asset that has a unique owner, which is proved through the blockchain. So a lot of NFT projects have been focused on art, designs, and um, and drawings, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. There are also use cases involving music, and then there are use cases um, outside of the creative spaces to apply the blockchain technology to real world assets, such as real estate. And then you have people working on car title and art transfers and all of those things as well. But our, our little part of the universe is, is focused on real estate. Roofstock is, is a real estate company. We've been around for seven years and, and our focus is single family rental homes. And so what we've done is after a solid year of research and work, finding a way to make it possible to legally transfer ownership of a single family home using an NFT smart contract. Now, Sanjay, can you tell me a little bit about this particular home? Uh, I believe, at least from what I saw, it was the first home sold as an NFT. Uh, one, is that accurate? And then two, can you tell me a little bit about the project? There have been other instances of trying to create an NFT representation of a single family home. It's ha It's been done a couple of times before. Uh, but uh, what was unique about our property was that 
to really uh, extend all the capabilities of Web3, this was a sale that happened through an NFT marketplace, and it was settled using the OpenSea Seaport contract, which the NFT marketplace, in our case, hosted by Origin Protocol, was using to settle the trade itself. And not only did it happen through that Seaport smart contract, but also this trade involved uh, financing on the blockchain. So these were the things that made it unique because when you're buying a rental property, you're looking for debt solutions to add on to your purchase because people don't, you know, when you're buying a $200,000 home, people rarely come up with $200,000 in cash to buy that. They're looking for a loan product to attach to that purchase. And so this was the first time we were able to bring in a loan product on the blockchain, combine it with an NFT marketplace and allow the sale to take place as a levered NFT property. Okay. We're going to have to break some things down here. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's step back. It sounds like with this process, you're allowing funding to happen mm -hmm. instead of having to go to a bank in a traditional sense, go to a bank to, to get approved for a loan and all of that. Now, through this process, you're able to go to the internet and get funding from wherever. Is that, am I correct Roughly so Roughly speaking, I mean, the, so the blockchain, as Jeff said, is an excellent record-keeping source for all kinds of transactional information. And that transaction could be the sale of a real estate property, but it can also be that somebody has provided X dollars in loan towards the purchase of this property that's all available to go and view on the Ethereum blockchain, right? In, in our case, we're using Ethereum as the blockchain uh, infrastructure. In a way, if we were to sort of take a step back and simplify everything, right? Why does blockchain technology uniquely allow us to do certain things today that were not possible, say, 10 years back, right? Mm -hmm. We have this notion of a piece of computer code, really, that's running on, on the internet, right? And mm -hmm. that's pertaining to this blockchain, uh, in our case, the Ethereum blockchain. But not it's not only just a piece of computer code that can run calculations, but you can combine it with something called as programmable money. And what do I mean by that? It's basically a digital representation of US dollars on the blockchain through cryptocurrency technology infrastructure that allows you to then combine that programmable money with a piece of computer code in essence, what's really happening in this transaction is, you know, there's a seller that has this NFT, which represents ownership of a single family rental property. There's somebody that's looking to buy this property and they have this programmable money. In our case, that was USDC, which is a stable coin issued by a company called Circle. And really a piece of computer code is able to take that money and transfer it from the buyer to the seller and transfer the NFT from the seller to the buyer. And all of this is happening instantaneously through the blockchain infrastructure. So for the first time, all of these technologies, what they're allowing us to do is transfer, not only transfer ownership of an asset, but also transfer money from the counterparty back to uh, you know, the seller in this case. And the combination of this programmable money and smart contracts on the blockchain allows you to do all kinds of interesting use cases. In our case, that was one was the sale of the real estate itself, but Two, um, you know, because of this programmable money concept, we were able to attach a loan to the sale and it was all managed by pieces of computer code, really. Mm -hmm. And that that changes the discussion uh, rapidly because in our case, this is an asset-based loan. So as you were pointing out earlier, you don't have to go to a bank, 
provide two years of tax statements and the last three months of bank statements and then explain all the money that came in and out and you mm-hmm. know prove that it was all legitimate transactions and mm-hmm. do all these things you know if if any anybody that's gone through a home buying process is very familiar with what i'm talking about yeah. you you get you know pre-qualified for a loan and then by the time you buy the property it's been a month or two and all the information is already outdated and then you're going back and resubmitting the same documents over and over again to the lender <laughs> And all that goes away here because we're talking about a rental property. It's an asset-based loan, a piece of computer code. If you say the property's worth $200,000 and the loan, you know, some lender decides that I can provide a $120,000 loan against this $200,000 property, a piece of computer code can execute all of that and transfer the money from the lender to the uh, piece of code that's going to then eventually go and transfer the NFT over from the seller to the buyer and then send all the money, the down payment and the loan all combined together goes back to the seller. So all this is happening, you know, rapidly, instantaneously. You're not going through weeks and weeks of underwriting and closing process, right? So that really is the magic sauce here. You're able to get that Amazon Prime-like experience as uh, Jeff likes to put it, right? You might spend a week looking at what you want to buy for Christmas whether it's the Nintendo Switch or PlayStation or whatever. and then but, but once you've made up your mind that this is what I want, you don't want to wait four weeks for that product to be shipped from China to a port in Los Angeles and then you know move to a warehouse and then put in a truck and send to your house. You want that the same day or next day, right? Yeah. And it's really that Amazon Prime experience that we're trying to bring to real estate here. Hmm. Jeff, who, without get, giving up, too much detail of uh, personal information. Who is the type of person or persons, the marketplace on the other side where that money is coming from or that loan is essentially coming from? So it it has a variety of sources. Um, There are institutions um, that have dedicated part of their business to uh, funding these types of Web3 lending endeavors. And there are you know, numerous cases out there where people are really just trying a new form of debt financing that's possible because of the Web3 technology. So the loan terms are more flexible, the underwriting criteria Again, not to say that um, it's unimportant or it's not done. That's that's not the case at all. But it's just an opportunity to relook at some of the assumptions that have been used in TradFi for so long and that may not be necessary anymore. So there is a group of, of institutional money that is actively deploying and, and experimenting in, in the Web3 space to find homes for, for its capital. And then there are individuals um, a lot of in the, in the crypto space of so-called whales that had you know took an early position in one of the major cryptocurrencies and it turned into tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and they they don't want to off ramp that into a bank account they want to keep it into in the cryptocurrency world but they want to deploy it somewhere so they they are also uh, looking for opportunities to deploy debt capital in, in different ways so it's a mix of institutions and and individuals yeah, I think one thing to add to that, right? Like, you know, if you're going to be living in a property, the underwriting typically does involve looking at your credit, your income, your tax filing, all that stuff. But if it's a rental property that's a commercial enterprise that you're just, you know, you're buying it so you can then find tenants and generate rental income from it, 
there's really no no need for that underwriting of the loan to look similar to a owner occupant type loan product right because if you look at in the uh, commercial real, real estate space if you look at multifamily or office buildings and so on you're not underwriting the owner of the apartment building to see if they qualify for a loan you're looking at the cash flow characteristics of that property and determining if if I can make a loan to this property and whether the cash flow is sufficient to repay the loan. Unfortunately, in the single family space, that's not how rental properties are underwritten today. And you know, there are a few kind of boutique lenders that might do that, but the interest rates are fairly high for those types of products. So the the more typical underwriting is again whether you're going to be living in the house or you're going to be renting it out, you're getting underwritten as the borrower based on your credit, your income your tax returns and so on. And so all we are trying to do here is say, hey, if this is a, a rental property, there should be a way to treat it just like you would with an apartment building or office and just change the way underwriting is done. And the lenders who are willing to accept that concept on the blockchain are able to step forward and, and underwrite these assets differently. And that's why the underwriting is fairly straightforward. It's simpler does not require submission of all your personal information and so on. So that's that's probably a huge part of this is that it's a rental property and not a a, a person moving into to their home that they're going to live in because it's really a business at that point and you have those numbers to look at. So your your personal stuff has nothing to do with anything. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's true for the the both the lending aspect and just the purchase of the home itself. A lot of these you know, our business model is set up to allow you to purchase homes remotely. So we do the diligence up front, the whole idea being all of the information a buyer needs before they make a purchase decision. It has already been provided. There's an inspection, there's hundreds of high quality photos, recent work reports, um, have taxes been paid, HOA, all of that is done up front. And the reason that works well for investment properties is because you can make a decision based on what you see online, as opposed to a home that you're going to live in, where maybe, you know, you do really want to spend time thinking about how that morning light comes into the kitchen window, you know, that, you know, those kind of subjective things um, are hard to do remotely, but it works perfectly for the investment case. Got it. Now, I wanted to unpack a couple more things. Jeff, you mentioned on the funding side, you sort of hinted at almost a new wave of funding where people are using this new frontier to completely relook at how you fund someone, mm -hmm. uh, how you generate a loan, cutting out the parts that don't make sense, and um, and they're utilizing this crypto world, blockchain, as a platform to completely innovate the industry. Um, is that accurate? Absolutely. Am I understanding that? Yep. Okay. Well said. And then you mentioned Web three a few times. Sanjay, can you talk a little bit about what Web3 is? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, um, I can sort of get into the philosophical aspect of it a little bit, and, and it, it will, it'll make sense. You know, when Web1 first came out 20 plus years back, 25 years back, primarily you saw websites where there was some static information provided, and, you know, you could just go and read those websites, but there's no other, you know, interaction possible with those types of websites. Then came, uh, you know, the next wave was sort of Web 2, which became a little bit more interactive, like you could fill in some information and you could interact with those websites a little bit more. There was credit card, uh, you know, integration that these websites had. So potentially you could go and 
add something to your shopping cart and then like pay for it through your credit card. And that was the kind of the Amazon, eBay world, all that kind of sprung from, you know, the Web 2. So it was, uh, you know, if you sort of look at Web 1 as read-only, Web 2 was a little bit of read and write happening uh, because you could provide information back to that website, interact with it. And a lot of interesting use cases came out of that. Web 3 is what people generally refer to as read-write-own. Philosophically, it's a concept which says that, you know, you shouldn't have a lot of big centralized companies that are controlling your experience on the internet. Really, the creators and consumers should have a better way to interact with each other. And potentially, both the creators and consumers, by cutting out some of the larger centralized intermediaries, are able to own a little bit of the economics of whatever transaction is taking place, right? So fundamentally, that's, you know, when people talk about Web3, I'm sure there's a lot of definitions going around out there. But really, it's read, write, and own, and own being, let's try to give more of the value back to the creators and the consumers and cut out, you know, large centralized intermediaries. So that's the sort of philosophical definition of Web3. And why that's relevant here is because in complex transactions that typically involve a lot of intermediaries, there's a lot of leakage in terms of fees that get paid to various parties that are providing some value in the ecosystem. But when you have this notion of, as we said earlier, smart contracts and programmable money working in conjunction with each other to transfer ownership and transfer value between two parties, in a, in a sense, you are able to cut out a lot of the middlemen in that process. And by doing so, a lot of the value that uh, would have otherwise leaked out of the system is being retained by the creator and the consumer, in, in a sense. And so th- that's why you know Web3 as a concept makes a lot of sense because in the past, like you might have just paid a say on an Amazon transaction, for example, you know thirty percent is taken by Amazon for playing that intermediary role, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like if the buyer and seller were able to just transact with each other and you were able to cut out that intermediary, for example, there's a lot of savings generated. Uh, similarly, in real estate, there's lots of intermediaries that are part of the closing process. And if you're able to cut out some of those intermediaries using this piece of computer code that does the transfer of asset and money, that you know generates savings as well. So that's sort of the ethos of uh, Web3 here. In some of my research, my interpretation is that with Web3, each user, person that gets on the internet, essentially has sort of a, a profile or identity. And when you interact with certain websites or transactions, you allow certain levels of your information to be accessed or or used or uh, read by the party that you're interacting with. Thus, you remove, that's how you remove that third party intermediary and make things a little more efficient. Is that accurate? It's also part of the uh, discussion because uh, the way you interact with the blockchain is through uh, a wallet. So only, you know, like I cannot use your wallet. Like if you, if I had your login and password somehow for a for Amazon, I could log in as you and you know buy stuff through your account. But with Web three, only the person that has the keys to the wallet is able to connect their wallet to a website and interact with that website. So in a sense, it's harder to steal that. I mean, of course, there are phishing scams and things like that. You have to be concerned about. But it's generally, you know. Only one person can connect with that wallet, and you know if you have to have the keys to that wallet to connect, and so um, that does you know to some extent what you were saying. 
that's how you interact with this ecosystem. And then also, you know, that wallet not only identifies that you are the person that's that's working with that with that website, but that wallet also is able to store value and store, you know, like money, programmable money again. So rather than go through the credit card system, for example, right, like it's entirely feasible that you have a an Etsy-like website where you're able to buy merchandise by just connecting your wallet and and purchasing that asset through a blockchain transaction. So we, we'll see that in the future, you know, as opposed to going to a hundred different sites and providing your credit card information in each one of those sites and them storing it locally on their databases. Yeah. There's really no need for hundred companies to have your personal credit card information on their file. You can just mm-hmm. connect with your wallet and the website can verify that your wallet has money and allow a transaction to take place. So mm-hmm. in a in a sense, you know, that's all part of the Web3 uh, design as well. Let's take a brief break from this conversation and we'll be back for more after a quick nod to our sponsors. Hello, Spaces listeners. Demetrius here. The other day I was on Instagram and I saw Michelle traveling the world again. I think she was in London this time. Now, if you're a frequent traveler like her or want to live vicariously through a frequent traveler... Our new sponsor is your ticket. Travel by Design, an original podcast from Marriott Bonvoy. In this podcast, host Hamish Kilburn, editor of Hotel Designs, speaks with architects, designers, and visionaries who dive deep into their designs and highlight what connects us to the world's most extraordinary travel experiences. If you know me, you know my passion for storytelling and audio production, and this show delivers. Their episode on El Mangrove, a hotel in the mangrove jungle in Costa Rica, really immerses you in the experience of the hotel. From a secluded overwater villa in the Maldives to a trendy hotspot in downtown LA, Hamish and the team do a great job highlighting the often overlooked nuances of design, the benefits design brings to guests, and by the end of each episode, I'm sure you'll want to travel. Beyond just the great quality and storytelling, These episodes are super easy to listen to. That Costa Rica episode is actually just over 12 minutes, so it's a great one to test out the show. Check out Travel by Design. All you have to do is simply scroll down to our show notes, click the Travel by Design link, and easily listen today. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. 
Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect Podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. So Sanjay, one of the things when we talk about NFTs and um, and this whole world, one of the things that comes to my mind is looking at, you know, recently with the NFT craze in an art sense, prices were skyrocketing through the roof. Uh, couldn't figure out why certain things were worth the amount of money that they were. Right. And then coming off of housing itself had this recent run up. Is there any concern in your mind of introducing these two things together that it, <laughs> it creates this uncontrollable monster that, you know, at certain times it's like, because these deals can happen so fast that there's almost no safeguard, at least what I see right now? Right. No, that's a great question. And I think the best way to unpack that is by looking at housing separately and the NFT uh, markets uh, separately. And and then mm -hmm. we can try to bring it all back together, right? Okay. Um, so housing itself, when you look at single family uh, real estate in the US, ever since the crash of 2008, you know, the credit crisis. So typically what happens is for new construction to happen, there's a process called entitlement of the land. So you find raw land, you get that raw land entitled for building a community, for example. And then you go through this process of horizontal construction, which means you might have to build a road that comes to this property. You might, you'll have to bring power lines and you know utilities to the construction site. And that process takes some time as well. And then once that horizontal development is ready, uh, has been completed, then it's time for somebody to actually come and build the house on top, right? And then that's called the vertical construction. So there's this kind of three-phase process for building new construction in the US, which is entitlement, horizontal, and then vertical construction. Mm -hmm. During the credit crisis of 2008, uh, new entitlements basically came to a stop. And so if you can look at it as a cycle of four to six years between the time raw dirt is converted into a finished property. Mm -hmm. um, and if you, you know, suddenly stopped doing that during the credit crisis, when you came out of it, there was strong demand for real estate, but there was just not enough product. So yeah. we've been trying to catch up on that deficiency since then. And as recently as last year, it was 
surmise that there's probably four to six million unit shortage in the U.S. And so when you look at purely economics, right, demand and supply, the demand mm-hmm. for the product was high, supply was low, and that drove prices up, right? Um, yeah. and, and coupled with the fact that we had historically low interest rates, because we were also going through a pandemic and the Fed was trying to make sure that we didn't get into a deep recession during the pandemic. So that kept, you know, they had a, a monetary policy that kept interest rates really low which made money borrowing very cheap because um, mm-hmm. people were able to get 30-year mortgages at two and a half, three percent 3%, you know, back then. So that then, you know, led to a much more, you know, higher demand for the product than you would have otherwise had. And so it was basically a combination of low supply, very cheap debt that really drove prices up significantly for this asset class, right? And so in 2020 and 2021, you saw unprecedented growth in property prices, which was not sustainable. And as the Fed's, uh, Fed has started increasing interest rates this year, we are already seeing the effects of that where you know demand for the product sufficiently softened and home prices started coming down. And they'll eventually, by next year or so, you know, we'll, we're hoping that by mid next year, inflation has been sufficiently managed by the Fed and we find a new equilibrium and then you know it'll kind of get back to some some semblance of normalcy mm-hmm. so that's what's happening in the real estate world in the cryptocurrency world what what really happened was 2021 was again a year of just unprecedented growth in the crypto markets like bitcoin and ethereum and other cryptocurrencies grew so much in value at some point last year probably the crypto markets were at about $3 trillion in in aggregate in terms of value. And what that allowed for people to do was get into some of these kind of projects, uh, especially these NF- some of these NFT projects, which are PFP projects or just, you know, it's essentially a JPEG that you're, uh, an image that you're attributing a lot of value to, right? It's not yeah. like, uh, you know, this, uh, otherwise there's no other kind of real scarcity about the asset. It's just that, somebody decided that this collection of 10,000 JPEGs is worth a lot of money and it's worth paying a lot of money for. Most of these are priced in ETH, by the way, these NFTs, right? The JPEG NFTs. And if you had bought ETH when it was $10, for example, and you owned thousands of ETH, you didn't mind paying 100 ETH or 200 ETH to buy a piece of art that you thought either resounded with you or you thought it was going to grow in va- continue to grow in value and you might do it as an arbitrage or a, you know a, an investment look at it as an investment opportunity so the mm-hmm. the crypto markets and nfts along with it also grew at an unprecedented rate in 2021 for some of these same reasons and with 2022 uh, what happened was bitcoin and ethereum are both very highly correlated with the stock markets today uh, you can kind of, if you draw a chart between S&P 500, Bitcoin, and Ethereum, you'll see that, you know, the movement is in the same direction. Of course, the volatility is very different. Uh, cryptocurrency yeah. is highly, highly more volatile than the stock market. So when the stock market goes up, cryptocurrencies used to go up uh, with it, but significantly at a higher pace. And when the stock markets came down, cryptocurrencies fell with the stock market, but also at a significantly higher rate. And so what ended up happening was in 2022, the, when the stock markets uh, tumbled, uh, along with it, the crypto markets tumbled, but at a much, much steeper pace. And so about 90% of the trading volume of NFTs kind of went away during the course of this year. And the floor prices of some of these assets 
which last year might have been trading at $400,000, is at $100,000 or below, for example, even the really big blue chip projects. And the smaller yeah. projects, of course, you know, those were highly speculative to begin with, and you know, they're all over the place. So when you sort of look at um, if somebody bought either real estate because of the low interest rate environments, they wanted to lock in on a piece of property and they were willing to pay more for it last year, or people had Ethereum at, you know, they'd bought it at such a low price that when they were buying these NFTs, they were not necessarily thinking about it in dollar terms, but thinking about it in Ethereum terms, and it didn't perhaps cost them that much based yeah. on what they had paid for Ethereum. You know, those those cycles have transpired. And now, you know, we're sort of coming back to a little bit of reality on all that. In our view, you know, we think of NFTs as just a, a platform that's very flexible and can allow you to do all kinds of things. So for example, with real estate, what you're really thinking about is, you know, it's representation and ownership, right? The representation simply means that you get the economic rights of something underneath that asset. And ownership means that you actually, you know, own the asset in a way that you can pledge the asset and borrow against it. You can sell the asset, et cetera, right? And for us, NFTs are really a way to provide that economic representation and ownership and just represent them, ledger them, uh, record them in a different fashion, right? It's just a piece of technology that can do a lot of different things. And and so for us, you know, the price of a monkey or a or or a crypto punk uh, alien, you know, it it really doesn't matter to us. We those are PF, PFP projects that, you know, either over time we'll see whether they those founders and those uh, projects continue to advance what their you know what their mandate is, and if people continue to believe those, they'll buy those as keepsakes or as assets they think will appreciate over time. But you know, when you look at real examples of what what can you do tangibly that actually creates value in the real world we think these technologies have the capability to do that and that's what you know we want to leverage here cuz you know the nft marketplaces they were built to support primarily these pfp projects but mm-hmm. now we're able to repurpose the, that infrastructure that's already been created for something that generates value in the real world and so, um, you know, a lot of these things might happen as a meme or a, or a game or a fun thing, but the infrastructure gets built out uh, to support that. And then the question is, how can companies like us leverage that infrastructure to do something else in the real world that's got real value and we can tangibly demonstrate that? Yeah. It sounds like the NFT is a means to more efficiency. Uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, the NFT is ignore the word. It's just a means to to create this efficient deal making process. Exactly, that's exactly right. So that's the lens we look at it from. Because you know, when you look at the infrastructure, there's the there's obviously the internet, and then the, on top of that, there's the uh, you know Ethereum blockchain, for example. Then there's all these different protocols that were built on top of that. For example, ERC-721 is the standard that's the non-fungible token standard, and that's sort of what all the NFT projects use. So somebody had come up with that, and then then somebody had designed marketplaces where you can buy and sell these things. And so if you sort of look at stack them all together, we are finally at a place where all those building blocks are in peace. And the last thing that needs to be added is some real-world example of, you know, how can we leverage everything that's been built so far but use it to sell real estate or use it to sell luxury cars or luxury watches, right? Like there's going to be 
other uh, use cases that come up, but eventually they'll all be sort of leveraging the same stack of infrastructure that's been built out over the last several years. And it, it all started because somebody had one use case and then a second one, a third one. And yeah. then as, the, as these layers got built, now there's enough of this where we can use what's been done in the past to really then add that incremental uh, layer to say, okay, we can bring in real properties into this infrastructure. Yeah. So it sounds like you're you're looking at this as potentially a solution to our housing shortage problem as well. If you create this opportunity for more deals to happen, you can find a lot more construction uh, potentially looking at a, a a much bigger scale. I don't I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth. <laughs> no, no, no. I I think there is some. There's a lot of truth to that, right? In in the sense that, you know, if you compare the way people, you know, transportation was working in the past, right? When you needed to go to the airport, you had to call a taxi company the night before and see if they can come pick you up. And <laughs> if they didn't have availability, you'd go through you know, Google search and pick the next taxi company and the next one and then, you know, make sure somebody was there to take you the next day. And if they were delayed, for example, the next morning and you were standing in front of your house and the taxi hadn't arrived and you were getting all stressed out and trying to desperately call other taxi companies, right? There was a way this worked in the past and it was not efficient. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, stressful at times, but people, you know, had to make do with it because there was nothing better, right? Mm -hmm. And then along came Uber and Lyft and all these guys. And they said, hey, there is a way you can uh, use an app to book a, a taxi. And we'll, ex you know, we'll actually show you a little cartoon of that car driving up. <laughs> and if you, you know, you know exactly where it is, you know exactly when it's coming to pick you up and all that. And you can do it anytime you want with your app. And oh, by the way, if you're standing outside a bar at 10 in the night and you need to get back home, you don't want to drive, like, yeah, you can you know, use that app and, you know, an Uber, it'll come pick you up there, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to waiting on the street and trying to hail down a cab. So when these technologies came in, it radically changed the way business was done in, in the transportation industry. It made it a lot more uh, convenient for the end user, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily a pricing thing there because, you know, Uber may cost you the same as a taxi might, but the convenience factor was much, much better. So in our case, with the way Web3 properties are being sold, right, it removes a lot of the stress because typically what happens in a sale process is this, you know, half a dozen different contingencies. There's an inspection contingency, an appraisal contingency, a financing contingency, and so on. And during those three weeks, the buyer and sell seller are both very nervous and stressed out because you might perform an inspection and then find out that there's actually a roof uh, leak that needs to be fixed or there's some plumbing issue that needs to be taken care of. Then you're going back to the seller and saying, yes, I made an offer for 200,000, but guess what? The inspection report shows that there's $10,000 worth of fixes I need to do, so I need a discount on the offer price. Yeah, And the, there's a, another negotiation that goes on at that time and either they are able to make a deal or uh, the buyer can rescind on the offer they made and come out, in which case the seller has to relist the property and try to sell it again. Similarly, if the uh, financing contingency doesn't come through because the appraisal numbers were off or the borrowers, uh, you know, the interest rate had changed by the time the borrower pre-qualified to the time they're actually ready to buy and they don't qualify for the loan anymore because the interest rates are higher. Well, the deal falls through again, and the seller has to go back and you know find another buyer, right? 
So this whole process is, in the TradFi world, very stressful for both the buyer and seller, because until the deal is completed, neither one of them knows it's going to actually go through. Whereas in the Web3 world, you know, with this instantaneous settlement, right, because all the diligence information is surfaced to you up front, you perform all your diligence before you decide to buy the property. But when you decide to make that purchase, the blockchain is instantaneously transferring the asset and the money, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit more convenient and pleasurable, both for the buyer and seller. And oh, by the way, you can also save on costs and fees because you don't have some of the same intermediaries. So it's a little bit cheaper as well. So when you look at it from that lens, right, it's the added convenience and some reduction in cost that eventually makes Web3 a much more favorable way of uh, doing business for these types of assets. And if if you are able to, you know, like not, if your transaction fees do come down, right, as a seller, it gives you the opportunity to perhaps trade more because you may want to get out of one market and double down on a different market. And today you don't do that because the cost and the time and cost and the stress of selling a home are so high. But if yeah. the time, cost and stress was considerably lowered in a different way of doing it, you might be more inclined to sell that property, get out of that position and go buy something else where you wanted, which allows somebody else to come and buy that property, uh, right? So it, it does create more opportunity for rebalancing home ownership and uh, you know, allowing people to get in and out much more conveniently. Right now, at least for you guys, you're looking at it as uh, investment properties. Do you see this fairly easily replicating over to normal home buyers process? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of things that are different about owner occupants than uh, with rental properties, right? One is typically in a lot of jurisdictions, the property taxes are assessed differently if you're an owner occupant versus if you're uh, a landlord. Mm -hmm. And so there are, these are known as homestead exemptions. And for those homestead exemptions, typically, you know, you need to be on title and you need to be able to demonstrate that you're living in that property. The way we do these Web3 homes in trying to shorten the process and make it easier, the properties are titled in single purpose, limited liability companies. And then the NFT is really allowing you to buy and sell the LLC as opposed to the home itself directly. And so in some states, living in a property that's titled in an LLC may not allow you to claim homestead exemptions, right? So there might be jurisdictional-based tax disadvantages to doing this for um, owner-occupants. On top of that, the lending solutions typically will be different as well because there's laws and regulations that protect owner-occupants differently than they do landlords. And a lot of the kind of mortgage laws and mortgage lending laws have been designed you know, with that consumer protection in mind. And so if you're giving a loan to an owner-occupant, that loan has to be under, underwritten very differently and you have to have a mortgage recorded for that. And, you know, if there's an event of delinquency or default, there's a, an established foreclosure process you have to go through and so on and so forth. And that require, that's a highly licensed activity, the both origination of those mortgages and servicing of those mortgages. So that is another layer that hasn't been solved on the blockchain yet because those are you know legal and regulatory layers that you cannot just by using a different piece of technology, you cannot short circuit those uh, those aspects. So we don't really have a lot of true uh, mortgage origination and servicing uh, activities that have been somehow, you know there's there's people trying all these things for sure and and maybe at some small scale, but not at a large enough scale where 
owner occupants can just leverage this mechanism to buy their property. So for now, you know, the low hanging fruit is the investment properties. And in the US, um, single family uh, residential properties are probably 35, 40 trillion dollars in aggregate value. And out of that, single family rental properties are probably in the four trillion dollar range, which itself is a, you know, it's a huge market if you sort of look at it, you know, in terms of the uh, target addressable market. And we feel that trying to solve real problems with things that are, you know, it's already complex enough to say you're buying a property a different way or using Web3 technologies on the blockchain. Yeah. And so you want to try and, you know, take the lowest hanging fruit out of that and try to solve the problem there first and then eventually see how you can expand on that, right? So that's that's yeah. how we've approached this. Interesting. Yeah, it'll... um It'll be interesting to see how this evolves because I know there are a number of builders that are starting to lean heavily into the build-to-rent market, and uh, I could see this being an opportunity for them uh, to potentially get to projects a lot faster. Absolutely. It's a, you know, the best way to think about it is it's a different distribution channel, right? Um, some people may still want to go through the traditional process and at least... Uh, I don't know how many of your audience, you know, is conversant and and you know comfortable with using blockchain wallets and things like that, which will happen over time, right? There will be a future where every Apple iPhone, you know, comes with a built-in <laughs> wallet, and you yeah. can use biometric, you know, scanning to open that wallet and then connect that wallet to stuff and be able to transact through that. You might be able to seamlessly using. Apple Pay, convert cash to crypto and all that stuff, right? But mm -hmm. some of that infrastructure is not yet there for retail investors to participate easily with the blockchain. So that's, you know, those things are still being built out. I'm sure in five years, there'll be a lot more people using, and you you probably wouldn't have to know that you're using the blockchain uh, because you'd be interacting with your iPhone, right? Um, yeah. For example, none of us know exactly how, you know, when I go and swipe my credit card to buy something, <laughs> How exactly the money moves from yeah. you know from my bank to whatever to you know get that done, but it works and we just that's all we need to know, right? Yeah. And I think we will get to a stage where you know you'll be doing these blockchain transactions and you wouldn't necessarily have to worry about oh is this happening on the blockchain or not because you know who like I don't really need to know how the internet works. I just need to know it works, right? So that's yeah. kind of I think where things are heading towards. Yeah. So let's say these builders that are leaning into the build to rent and they get it financed through this process we're talking about, how easily or difficult would it be to then start to pull homes out and sell them for owner-occupy? Absolutely. So that process is fairly straightforward because uh, ultimately, even though there is a blockchain aspect to it and there's an NFT and all these things we talked about, in the real world, there is an LLC and there is a real property. So yeah. all you need to do is, if there is an outstanding loan, pay off that loan for the LLC, right? And then decouple the NFT with the LLC. At that point, you have a regular old vanilla LLC that has a property in it and you can do whatever you want with it. You can sell it on the MLS. You can, you know, um, move, if you want to move into the property, you can and uh, like, remove mm -hmm. it from the LLC, retitle it in your name because you own the LLC. If you want to just convey the title back to your name, you can do that. And then you can just go, you know, live in the property if you wanted to, right? So all of that is designed to be extremely easy. A lot of the work we've done is to try to make the uh, 
on-chain and off-chain aspects work in a way that if you want to stay on the blockchain, it's easy to do so. But if you want to exit that, that's also equally easy to do. This is so fascinating. Now, as as Roofstock, how how can people engage with you? And 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 tell me a little bit about that process of anybody that wanted to work with Roofstock. Yeah. So the Roofstock uh, prop tech company itself, outside of our what we're doing with Web three here, you know, has a product where people that want to buy uh, rental properties can come to Roofstock, Roofstock.com, and then um, connect with our associates who are who can help you design a buy box and then purchase properties for you that meet that buy box. And by buy box, I mean, like you might say, I'm looking for income producing properties in Birmingham or Atlanta or Indianapolis. And, and I want to buy five in the next couple of years. And, you know, the, you know, I'm looking for these types of properties that were built after 1990 and have at least three bedrooms and two and a half baths. And so you can define those parameters and then will help execute that buy box. With the Web3 division, you know, it's just adding on that Web3 layer to it. If you have your own buy box, we can help purchase properties that meet that buy box and then tokenize them and then sell sell them to you at a, as a Web3 property. Uh, our website is onchain.roofstock.com. And um, I, you can also uh, connect with me on Twitter, eth underscore Sanjay, S-A-N-J-A-Y. And uh, yeah, we're happy to, again, you know, we have expertise in probably 70 plus markets right now as Roofstock itself, uh, rental markets. And, you know, in any of these markets, we can help you figure out your buy box and then purchase properties that meet that buy box. And then certainly for the Web3 product, we can then tokenize it and help you secure on-chain financing as well. And uh, we are just getting ready to close our next property. You, you know, we were very uh, fortunate that Web3 and crypto Twitter and LinkedIn really you know, gave a lot of attention to our first sale, uh, which was historic in many ways. Uh, but now we're looking to expand on that. So we're closing a property in um, Covington, Georgia. It's in a suburb of Atlanta that's going to get renovated shortly. And then that'll be available uh, for sale uh, early next year. And then we'll start, you know, we're slowly going to be adding more properties. Again, starting with markets that are generally, you know, good cash flowing markets. And, but also, we're being very selective right now where we don't want to buy too many properties in a market that's somewhat uncertain. So the offers that we make right now, we're you know, trying to get a discount on the list price. And only if we're able to buy it at a good price, we're taking it down for, this, for these next couple of months. But once the market stabilizes, you know, we plan to expand pretty rapidly. But uh, yeah, keep, a, keep an eye out for our next property. Hopefully it generates the same kind of attention that the first one got. Yeah. Is it best to kind of follow along with that through your website or social media? What's Social media would be great. We're going to be starting to do posts on our Twitter handle. It's uh, RS on chain. And so, yeah, as we close this property and start the renovation process, we'll have more information that we'll start sharing about it. And also everything else that's happening in our ecosystem. We have plans to continue working with more DeFi lenders as well who can provide lending uh, solutions on the blockchain. We have a great partner right now with Teller Finance that did the first one, uh, and they'll continue to play a big part on it uh, on the you know, future projects as well. But we're also looking to see if we if there's other interesting lending products that can be added where you know borrowers have a a menu of choices to choose from and pick the one that meets their um, needs the best. Great. 
Thank you so much, Sanjay. And uh, for the listeners, we lost Jeff. He had to jump on another call. But please thank Jeff for me as well. Um, this is super fascinating conversation. Learned a lot. Um, so I really appreciate it. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you again to Travel by Design for their support of this episode. Behind the facade of every world-class hotel, there's a story waiting to be heard. Make sure you hear that story by simply scrolling down to our show notes and click the Travel by Design link to listen today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. 
Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.